it is kind of a paradox, right? Because it's like telling someone like the best way to make money is to stop thinking about making money. Like that's a very frustrating to hear if you're trying to make money, but it's true. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. As I hear myself saying that, I'm wondering if I'm in danger of being too repetitive when I open these episodes. A real quick story. When I was in college, my accounting lectures were all online, and the professor opened every single one of his videos with the line, Hi, everyone. Welcome back. If you went to Ohio State, you know exactly what I'm talking about, but he opened up every single one of his videos that way. And a couple years ago, someone actually uploaded a two-minute supercut of that line from all of his videos, and I would love to include it here, but unfortunately, it looks like it's been taken down. Anyway, welcome back to another hour here together with me. And speaking of online courses, today I'm speaking with a man who has helped tens of thousands of creators sell things online. Courses, MP3s, videos, all kinds of digital products. His name is Sahil Lavingia, and he's the founder of Gumroad. Gumroad is a super simple online platform that facilitates the sale of products by creators directly to consumers. It's literally as easy as embedding a button on your site or directing them to a specific Gumroad page. It may seem simple to sell products online today, but that's largely due to the work that Sawhill has pioneered. He was actually one of the very first employees at Pinterest back in the day, but he left in 2011 to build Gumroad. I wanted to sell a product myself. That's sort of why I wanted Gumroad to exist. Sawhill wanted to sell an icon that he created, and he couldn't find a simple way to do it. Little did he know that in the process of building a way to sell that icon, he would stumble upon a whole new growing trend of people trying to sell digital products online. And, you know, this is before like the word creator was even a thing, you know, we were some of the first people to use that word, certainly in this context. Like I remember like trying to figure out like what, what do we call these people, you know? As you'll hear in the interview, Sahil eventually landed on the term creator. And over the next few years, Sawhill would have to come up with some more terminology to describe this new form of commerce. Like what would he call the things that these creators sold? And how would you refer to the people that you were selling these products to? And audience is kind of another word that we, we struggled again to define this. <laughs> who do we call the people who, you know, are they your customer base or your, we came up with audience because it was the one that overlapped music and film specifically. And it had more of like a real kind of like a physical feel to it, like an audience of people. Today, Gumroad serves nearly 75,000 creators. In September of 2020, creators on Gumroad earned a total of nearly $13 million for the month, and 10 of them made more than $100,000 each for the month. In this episode, we talk about the beginning of Gumroad, how the creator landscape has changed in the last decade, trends in audience building, and how honesty has been key in Sawhill's work and the work of so many creators that he supports. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus or in our Creative Elements listeners group on Facebook. If you're not in there already, click the link in the show notes and join us. But now, let's hear from Sawhill. Gumroad was, I think, the first sort of, you know, super easy setup 
we kind of called it the lemonade stand of the internet. It was the first time it was possible to sort of sell something that easily for digital digital content, for physical content too. But you know, presumably, when you're selling physical product, you you need more anyways, right? So it's not as sort of as as big a deal. But for, you know, if you're selling an MP3 file, it's weird that you need to kind of set up all this stuff to just you know make a dollar on the internet. The sort of default option was PayPal, putting a PayPal button on a website page, right? Everyone kind of knows what that gold little button looks like. There were basically everything was a wrapper around PayPal. Like PayPal, you know, Stripe had not launched at this point. So it was really like roll it yourself, you know, build a whole storefront, at least have a website, use PayPal. So yeah, that's really the creator sort of landscape was build it yourself. Put, put yourself in a marketplace, right? So like iTunes, for example, or iStock Photo, you know, these kind of big marketplaces because the sort of activation was so high, you know, you basically, the activation energy was so high, you kind of, you know, split the cost with everybody else, right? But then the marketplace would take sometimes more than 50%, you know, for that because there's no other alternative. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was different than what it looks like today. And that was only, you know, nine years ago. I'm trying to think back to where I was nine years ago and the things around me, because in the, the world we live in now, it seems like teaching online and things like YouTube, like all of this is such a common way of life now that I can't even remember to when it didn't exist. What were the types of things that people were actually trying to sell online at that point? You mentioned MP3s. What else? Yeah, you know, MP3s, PDFs, MOVs, MP4s. Like it was so early that People were just doing what they were doing before, but just instead of selling, literally like mailing DVDs and stuff, like they were now just, it was downloadables, right? This is like, you know, now you buy a, a gaming console and you just download everything, but now you, no one knows what a CD, I mean, no one knows, or no one has CDs, right? Like, unless you're really into something, it's unlikely, maybe Blu-ray is still a thing and stuff, but, you know, not for anyone under the age of like 30, probably. And so, yeah, just like, yeah, back, back then it was just sort of the on offline to online transition. So, you know, instead of selling a DVD, you'd sell a, you know, an MOV and then instead of selling a CD, you'd sell, you know, MP3 files, a zip file with a bunch of MP3s in it. And yeah, it was pre, pre, I think teachable launch in maybe like 2014, I think. So three years later, you know, Patreon launched in 2012, I think. So yeah, really, we were, I don't know if we were the first, first, like, I'm sure someone would argue with that, but we were pretty, pretty early to the, mostly because, I mean, you know, credit to Stripe too, right? Like we only existed because Stripe made it possible for me to build this thing by myself and we launched before Stripe launched. So effectively, like we kind of were ahead of everybody effectively because, you know, we rode that wave early, you know, we're one of the first few users of Stripe. Can you talk to me about the, the breakdown? It sounds like early on you had videographers, musicians. When did you start to see other disciplines of creating and selling digital products online start to come into place? Yeah, I mean, you know, Nathan Berry, who sort of had a lot of success on Gumroad and now runs ConvertKit, he was one of the first sort of like early success stories on Gumroad and was very open about it, which helped us and helped him a lot. I think it was very sort of beneficial, mutually beneficial relationship there. And I remember like there are two websites that use the word creator. Kickstarter and YouTube were, were the two platforms that use creator. So we didn't come up with it, but I think we pop, popularized it quite a bit, especially within this sort of demographic. And they're not, we tried artists, we tried creatives and everything was like, had a little bit, was too loaded with, with another idea already. And we sort of figured out, 
you know, the, the, I think the key insight was, you know, like people were kind of vertical specific, right? There were four verticals primarily on Gumroad in the early days because it was the way to look at this stuff was music, film, publishing, and software. You were doing one of these things and, and, and you could even almost like map geography, right? You could say San Francisco for startup or for software and startups. You could say New York for publishing. You could say music in LA, uh, film in LA, right? Uh, it mapped very cleanly to these boom towns effectively. And then we started seeing the transition with Nathan and other folks like him who were not just authors, they were kind of selling more than that. And so we kind of needed a new word for that. And so I went to Kickstarter, which was my sort of number one sort of like thing that I would think of if you're like, you know, trying to figure out like, what is this new thing? And they started using creators, creators of projects. And even like the word products, like we struggled a lot with like, what do you call the thing that you're putting up here, like what are you adding? And I don't know what the default is, but we we started calling calling them products, and that seems to have stuck. I think I don't, I'm not sure, but but really people refer to the to the people because it is like this sort of amalgamation of all of these things that you end up end up doing. So that was like the the, the first transition. We're starting to see more of that. Like I think creator, the sort of info product kind of people are now you know like there's a lot more educators and teachers on the platform who just consider themselves teachers and educators. They don't consider themselves creators or authors or anything like that. And, and I think that will continue, right? Like who do you, what do you call someone who's on TikTok selling like food recipes on TikTok or something like that? Like there's not really a word for, you just call them a TikTok person, you know, like you kind of have yeah. to describe the thing because you don't have the reference pointer that captures like all of the things that they do. So it's kind of a constantly kind of evolving thing, which is why I think Gummer, it's so fun to work on because it just gives us access. It gives us this like beautiful vantage point into innovation on the content creativity side. Yeah. It almost feels like as the means of creation and the different things you could create have grown, identity has become even more difficult to, to not have, you know, these loaded ideas around, mm-hmm. you know, I try to help freelancers, but people don't self-identify as freelancers. They self-identify as a graphic designer who is freelancing or a copywriter who is mm-hmm. freelancing. These questions of identity are so interesting. I also love the word creator because there's a, there's a flexibility to it. You know, you hear all these stories of people who, they self-identify as the founder of this thing or as an entrepreneur. And then when that gets sold or it fails and it's no longer around, they have like this identity crisis. Whereas if you kind of go a level up, like I think that being an entrepreneur, being a founder is a subset of being a creator, but being a creator and identifying that way gives you so much more optionality for how you can spend your time and still feel like you're aligned with who you are. You know, maybe you take mm-hmm. a part-time job somewhere so that you can actually focus more time on your creative work. And that's not threatening your identity because you're still a creator. So to kind of tie back today to, to when people were starting and it was film, music, PDFs, what are the most popular types of products on Gumroad today? I mean, this is the problem is like, I can't tell you because it is so variable, you know, like I can say, look, educational content is the most popular category, but like, what does that mean? Right? Like, everything is educational to a degree. You're sort of presumably always learning something from everything that you consume, including music and film and entertainment and and all of these things. So it's just really, it's really tricky. Uh, I mean, I think this is one of the hard parts about content marketing for these kind of folks, right? Because everyone's like, hey, how do I make money on the internet? And I'm like, well, it's sort of case by case. Like it depends on what you like and what your audience is into and your voice. And like, you can't just say food because there's like a million different ways I was thinking about this actually the other day, because maybe like 10, 15 years ago when I was in high school, you had a career fair and you had like jobs, right? Like you had like firemen and like police 
woman and business entrepreneur, I guess was one of them, right? And, and, but they were like pretty clear, cleanly defined. And, but then when you become an adult, you realize there's like literally millions of different jobs, right? Like there's like roller coaster designer and there's like this very specific, I don't know, person who designs plates. And there's just, there's, and I think in the future, there will be as many jobs as there, as there are humans, basically. Like everybody will be sort of like a fully unique yeah. producer of something or another, right? Like someone had to design like this coffee cup, right? And someone had to design this and this is separate. And like, there's just so many things. Someone had to like mine this out of the dirt. Like there's just like all of these things that are happening in the physical world. And I think you'll see the same thing online where you're just going to have just an inordinate amount of identity, I guess, right? Where at some point, like it's just meaningless. It's just like, we just, you know, Shopify, I, you know, it's just like, what, what do people use Shopify for? Like virtually everything. It's I mean, obviously has a bent like D to C or whatever, but it gets pretty, pretty, pretty useless, like pretty quickly when you, when you realize, and I think this is happening. You see this in politics and stuff too, where I, th- I just think like, actually the beauty of the internet is like people are sort of able to break, you know, out of these things because in the physical world, you kind of like need to go to college and you need, you know, like there's more identity serves a purpose there, but in this new kind of COVID era world where you're just like online, you don't need the board. You're not in a room and not in a room. There's like no sort of delineation there. So I think, and I, 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 I kind of think that we'll just see this like, lack of identity, you know, sort of thing. Like, I don't even know what to call myself anymore. Even the word job that you just brought up with like the context of a career fair in high school Mm -hmm. or even college, like that has a connotation of you're employed by someone else. You rarely got told the story of the person who was employing or made the thing in the first place. And now in this world of creators, your income isn't from a job. It could be from an amalgamation of 13 different sources, you know, including the the dollar I get every month on medium from that one thing I wrote two years ago. <laughs> it's, it's a totally different world. <laughs> yeah. We started recently having these quarter time positions at Gumroad, you know, where basically you work 10 hours a week for Gumroad and then you can do whatever you want, but the rest of your time, it's almost like the opposite of the Google 20% or something like that. Uh, I think Daniel Vasallo was the first person to suggest it. We've been doing a bunch of part-time and contract work and it's been phenomenal for us because it's honest it's just look like look you want to be a creator don't you then like why would you work at gumroad <laughs> isn't it weird isn't it weird that like we're, we're we're a company that says we're for creative people but we mandate that everybody work 40 hours a week or more yeah for us and basically frankly gumroad is not an easy like it's a lot of work and so you know you work 40 hours on gumroad you don't have the energy typically after work to, to work on I, I don't personally you know so i think it just sort of feels more true to sort of sort of like face that face that and say look what if we are actually a company really of creators and guess what creators don't want to work on a company it's sort of this weird thing so like what if we just hire the best creators in the in the the industry that obviously want to do this many don't many are want to do it full-time and see what they want like right like you just you know i had a tweet the other day that was like you know people always say like solve your own problem right but eventually you stop you stop solving your own problem because it's a business and like the job of a business is to solve other people's problems, yep. right? At some point I solved my problem and I don't have that problem anymore. And the problems of a CEO of a technology company are very different than the problems of a creator typically. And I was like, one way to scale this, like one way to go back to the solve your own problem is to hire people who have that problem. Like mm-hmm. go hire Gumroad creators and then just say, look, what, what do you, you know, what would you want? You can literally, you now have control. Like what would you build for yourself before I could ask them, you know, and then I would have to go build it. And now I can ask them and then they can go, they can go build it. They can get paid for it. And it's a super new experiment. It's like maybe a month or two old, uh, maybe not even actually probably like three weeks old or something. 
but I'm very optimistic about it. I think it's actually going to be incredibly popular. And I think it's sort of the, the successor to remote work, actually, because I think when you're in an office and all these, there are other, all these things that are bundled with working, as we were talking about previously, right? But if you break that, if you get rid of the office, like there are all these other things that, that we don't do because we don't have an office. We don't, you know, internet. Everyone has internet. I don't know how. They figured it out. I have internet. <laughs> figured it out. Everyone has a laptop and a phone somehow. They figured it out. We don't have to give them these things anymore. Some companies do, right? Because they're still, they're sort of like in that old world and they kind of expect to go back to the old world. But like, I'm more like, well, this is a whole new world. And again, like that power law, how can we be first? How can we, we be early? Like what, what sort of boundaries can we push around this stuff? And, and it, it just feels, feels honest, feels right. And, and it, it, you know, and the, the nice thing is as a creator, I can go talk about it. And it's a really good test for me to be like, is this what we should be doing? If I feel comfortable, if I feel proud, to talk about this, this might be right. And if I don't feel proud, I might be wrong, right? After the break, Sahil and I talk about the biggest changes he's noticed in the creator landscape since the beginning of Gumroad, right after this. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash j. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash j and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. 
It's truly a unique event. And if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com slash science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back to Creative Elements. We heard Sahil talk about all of the actual terminology that he and his team had to create and use in the early days of Gumroad. Now, nearly a decade later, I asked him what stands out in his mind as the biggest changes in the creator landscape since those early days. I mean, honestly, in so many ways, it's like identical, you know, like people are still building audiences via blogs and email newsletters and social media. I guess social media is kind of like relatively new and monetizing it by selling content and products to them. And I think, I think there's definitely been like more of a trend around like community, you know, as, as you reach sort of quote unquote scale and you've been around long enough, you know, like you just need more, you know, you're, you have enough people in your audience that kind of want to talk to each other. And you almost have like hierarchy within your audience of people who've known you for a long, you know, it's kind of like what happens to rock stars, right? Where they're like, Oh, you have your like groupie, like I've known you back, you know, it, it, you, your, your whole like audience just becomes like an, a, a community itself, which, you know, in the beginning, you just don't have that. And we've seen that with Gumroad even the last couple of years where people feel like some more attachment to the brand. I think if we sold a t-shirt online, we'd see a lot of traction for that. Whereas like maybe two, three, four years ago, I don't think that would have been the case. People would love a free shirt, probably wouldn't pay for it. So yeah, I mean, honestly, I think a lot of it is the same. I think, I think scale changes things. It's like when, when Apple first announced the iPad, people joked that it was just like a bigger iPhone. Right. And there was a, a great line I saw that was like, you know, it's like comparing like a bathtub to a pool or something. Because like, yeah, technically it's the same. Technically a bus is a car, you know, uh, technically a human is an ape. Like how f- it's just a level of abstraction. And I think scale is, is similar, right? Where like there are new things you can do at scale that you weren't able to do before. And I see this sort of I'm sort of within the sort of tech industry. I've seen this even in the last two years. Like, I mean, if you think about the tech industry, we've been using Twitter since like 2007, 2000, maybe even before that. I started using it in like 2008 or something, you know, so 12, 12 years. But only in the last couple have I really felt like, wow, you can actually, you can have hundreds of thousands of followers on this thing, right? And you see that yeah. there's like countless examples of those. And it almost feels like it was always like this, but like three, four years ago, no one had that many, like really, you know, if you had that many followers, you'd be considered like a celebrity. And so it's just, I think scale does enable like a whole new shift because what scale does is it creates an economy and it creates like a market for people who build tools. And so when you have scale, you ha- you get better tools made, right? Like Figma and Canva and all of these tools that didn't exist five years ago even. And that creates, makes it easier for more people to get in, which allows even better tooling to exist. And, and, and sort of the cycle continues and continues. So when you have the means of creation, creates more creators, creates an economy that creates more means of creation. And, and so I really think like, Matt Ridley has a, a phenomenal book about this called How Innovation Works and, and, and a book before that called The Rational Optimist, where he talks basically about like, if you want to create innovation, just have more kids, basically. Like the more yeah. people, the more innovation. America is like the most innovative, you know, place sort of in the last, whatever, 200 years. And it does sort of probably correlates with how many people had buying power and sort of before that Europe. And, you know, like really, if you just look at a lot of these things, like if you look at the iPhone, like how many people really contributed to the development of the iPhone, literally millions of people, right? Like no one could have made this themselves. And the, so like what, what imagine a device that billions of people contributed to that device will exist and it will be unfathomable to the way it's either that or we explode. I sort of believe in very two divergent outcomes. You either, yeah, we either light ourselves on fire 
or we like conquer the whole universe. Like it's really sort of as simple as that to me. I like to sort of like to believe it's the, it's one, not the other. It's so interesting to me how frequently I have the thought of how pure music is as a form of entrepreneurship. And then, you know, moving forward, you, you mentioned that again, music was one of the first things that was being sold on Gumroad. You just brought up community. I had this conversation two days ago because community is like really topical right now. And I was thinking about, you know, who's been doing this really well for a long time. And again, musicians were at the leading edge of that because they pulled people into the space. And not only were you going to the live shows for the music, you're going because of the people that you could expect to see at that live show. And I wonder what the next, you know, intersection I'll find of, oh, musicians were like, we could have predicted this if we just looked at what musicians <laughs> have been doing for a hundred years. I can already. give you a great example, uh, which is venture capital, right? So you have labels, which basically effectively, you know, provide advances to artists and take a percentage of their earnings in perpetuity effectively. Uh, and this has sort of become a recent topic again with Taylor Swift and Kanye and all these things, but like, you know, the record label is just a venture capital firm, which provides certain things to the people, the talent who actually build all the stuff and make all the content. And you see it all, all over the place. Music is, is early. Um, and I think that's just because the cost of production is cheap. So you'll see it first in music and you'll see it last in video games, probably, because that's mm -hmm. sort of the most expensive. You know, if you look at CDs and the transition to digital, my guess is like you, you saw it with music first and then with films and then with video games. And so, yeah, music is a, is a phenomenal place to look look for like what the future might look like. Bandcamp, my guess would be Bandcamp. Bandcamp might have been, yeah, it was a marketplace. It probably existed before Government, but I get my guess is Bandcamp was before, you know, a lot of these other things. iTunes launched before, you know, the other verticals that they now have. And also, I think file size comes into it. Like that's sort of, it's not only cheap to produce, but it's basically free to transmit, right? Like basically if yeah. Government was only music, it would be free to run <laughs> effectively. Uh, Basically, the only cost that we have in terms of files is video. Everything else is like basically rounds down to zero. But our video streaming and everything like that costs tens of thousands of dollars a month, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's like three seconds of video is one song kind of thing. It's, it's a crazy multiple. It also strikes me that, you know, when people are coming to Gumroad to sell their music, they realized I already have a fan base. I have an audience. And so I need the means to service that audience through technology. And now today, as this is becoming more and more understood and in vogue, people are like, well, I want to sell things online, but they haven't necessarily put in the years of doing work to create the audience. And now mm -hmm. they realize, oh, I can't just create the product. I actually need to have a group of people that the product is for. So can you, can you talk a little bit about the change and how people have thought about what an audience is, the role of an audience, building an audience? What does that look like over the last eight years? It's definitely become more considered in the way that people start thinking about how they want to make a living as a creator. Um, before it was like, I need to get really, really, really good. And now it's like, I need to figure out how to build an audience, which often is different than the way you get bec become really, really good. So people say, oh, you learn how to write, you write a lot of blog posts and start a newsletter, and then you do this other stuff. Personally, I, I think we've almost swayed maybe too much on that side of things where there is such an obsession I see this like on Twitter where I'll tweet something and I'll get like a hundred people replying to it with like some aphorism or something. And it's like pretty obvious to me that these people are just trying to build their audiences, and which is fine, by the way, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But I'm just like, I hope that they're also working on the stuff that people will end up paying them for. 
So the, the internet is great because it gives you all of these examples of creators who are making a living doing what they love. And that's great because, you know, it's inspiring and more people should do it. And having examples of how you can actually do it is, is really great. I think one downside to that is people sometimes, it's sort of like seeing people on the other side of a fence, not really realizing that the path is like all the way around and they spend all their time trying to climb up it or whatever kind of extended metaphor. And so I, you know, I, I do or always kind of remind people like, look, ultimately people pay for you and your journey and your story and your competency. And so you should always be working on those things like tweeting and sharing and all this stuff is sort of, you know, like I kind of think of it as kind of like the, the sort of like residue of like your journey and like your sort of like investigative journalism almost, right? Like, Hey, I just found this thing out or isn't this cool? Or like, check this thing out. Or I learned this today, et cetera. I think there's some times people who just focus on that part. They're like, what can I learn today so I can share it? And I think that's sort of negative because I think you're, you're too short-term focused. You're not looking for like the stuff that people really, really want. And the other thing is, and this is the case with basically all technology I think, and all democratization is you have this, this crazy power law, right? Of the people who are really successful and second, number two is down here, number three is down here. And it kind of goes like this. So, you, you know, you want to be first and you want to be early and you want to be really good, really fast, which doesn't mean like copying typically, right? It, it typically means like, well, what do you really care about? Like if you really care about like indie video games, like what component of video in, indie video, like sprite design, right? Like there's probably a way to make a hundred thousand dollars a year around sprite design certainly there is if no one is doing that today but a lot what i see is people say oh look there's like people who are making a living like teaching people how to write on twitter or whatever you can certainly do that it's not you know but like it's going to be incredibly competitive and and difficult to stand out and it also just like maybe i just have so many so much data to look at that i can tell really quickly but i can tell if someone's really interested in something or if they're not Mm -hmm. right i don't know i always really I, i see this as an investor too i've just started doing that more recently like it really matters to me like why you're doing something. And I think it matters to your audience too, because people don't want to pay someone money if they believe they're doing it to make money, right? They're, they want to support you because they really want to give you money so that you can go buy the weird thing so you can like investigate it and then show them what the, you've learned from it. They want to support you in your yeah. hobbies more than the living is almost like a, a, a tangential thing, right? Whereas like if you're a business, like they're not, you know, then it becomes like kind of a financial relationship more than a, kind of a social relationship. And I mean, you've seen this, you know, this is a transition that always happens, right? Like Kickstarter, I think has gone through this recently where I think it's become much more of a kind of a retail experience. Now people have kind of figured out how Kickstarter works and the best ways to use it. And it sort of becomes like a business product almost, which is kind of inevitable. But I do sort of always mind people when they're so focused on building an audience. It's really cool that people are thinking about that, but you know, you still have to do the other stuff, right? And the brilliance of things like social media is that you can you really to build an audience, you don't have to spend hours a day. You should, you can like, I spend maybe, I don't know, four minutes a day to actually creating content on social media. Right. I just go on Twitter and I say like something. Right. And then I, and then I go back to, to my, my life doing whatever I'm doing. And so I just, I do always remind people just, you know, make sure that you're, you're, you're making stuff, right. This is why I love the word creator and why we settled on it is because it really, puts first and foremost like the point of this which is creation and making stuff and creation very specifically means from nothing the aspect of creation that is unique from production for example is that it it's new it's different it wasn't there before now it is it's zero to one etc and that doesn't happen very easily and it, it doesn't happen in a predictable fashion 
And so, yeah, I don't know. I always, I always mind people that, yeah, be careful, be careful about putting all your eggs in the audience bucket, you know, and, and ultimately like after a certain scale, your audience is going to bring you more audience members. And so your job is actually becomes easier or harder depending on how you look at it, but it's more pure because then you actually just focus on content creation. And then your audience says, Hey, I love this person. Do you know who they are? And your audience starts to grow more organically over time. I think that's really smart. You know, when you're talking about people who are building their audience by just kind of sharing like, what am I doing? Here's, here's what I'm learning. Here's how things are going. I love the idea of learning in public, but there's, there seems to be such a limit to that. Like, sure, you could be the front of the power law for people that are you, but that's a, you know, mm-hmm. a very small thing. If you're trying to do that over the period of five or 10 years and build an audience around that, you kind of are expecting your audience to grow exactly the way that you are for them to remain interested in the thing that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But it's it's hard to think about, well, what is the what is the thing that I can talk about consistently for a long time that will continue to be relevant to some large group of people? It almost Mm -hmm. it it feels almost uncreative sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, it feels too strategic, right? It's like if I sat down and said, how do I maximize my audience? I'm not going to be successful at maximizing my audience. When we come back, Sahil and I talk about the methods that he sees up-and-coming creators using to build their audiences and why, above all else, he considers himself to be a writer. So stick around, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Creative Elements in my conversation with Sahil Lavingia. On this show, we've heard a lot about the strategy of search engine optimization and building an email list. And since Sahil has the benefit of learning from tens of thousands of creators, I asked him what he's seeing as the up-and-coming strategies for building an audience in 2020. Social media seems to have become like incredibly dominant, especially in the last year or so. People have realized, especially with COVID, it's sort of the new main street where people are just living online. They're sort of scrolling their feeds consistently, constantly, probably too much. TikTok is sort of this new sort of phenomenon. But again, yeah, it's kind of the same. I would say people spend too much time probably focusing on SEO and other things. Like the truth is like Google gets smarter every day. And SEO to me almost says you're better, you're smarter than Google. <laughs> it's a hard bet to make, right? Obviously, right. I'm simplifying a little bit. But it, I think it's true to the degree that like the best thing I ever wrote in terms of building my audience was was called Reflecting on My Failure to Build a Billion Dollar Company, which was about Gumroad, just my story building Gumroad and how it wasn't sort of the venture-backed unicorn that we wanted in the, in the beginning when I started it. And that was insanely successful. 800,000, 900,000 people have read it at this point for myself. But it's a, it is kind of a paradox, right? Because it's like telling someone like the best way to make money is to stop thinking about making money. Like that's a very frustrating to hear if you're trying to make money, but it's true. Like you kind of just have to pursue your own interests, get really, really good at whatever those things lead you to. And when you get there, you're going to be the only one or one of very few, because if, if you take a path that's well, you know, well trodden sort of by definition, by the time you get to, to where you need to go, like everybody else is there, right? Like if you buy a book that teaches you how to do something, the writer wins, right? Because they were, they were the first maybe to get there and teach everybody else. But the goal is to really incorporate those insights into another path that you're on. It should not be, I think, to, to tread the same, you know, there are a lot of sort of insights that you can take and apply. I think the Gumroad post, like you could read that and be like, oh yeah, this is, you know, it's interesting to think about creating value versus capturing value, right? Mm -hmm. That's like a line I hear a lot or, or how important the market is to determining your growth. 
versus just like the quality of your team or the quality of the product, quality of the features, how fast you ship, et cetera. And that applies to virtually everything. But it's sort of like, it's like be specific, right? Like figure out what you really care about as specific as you. And that's what will drive the sort of generalized insights for people. But if I just wrote a post that said just those highlights, right? If I just said Gumroad run from here to here, I learned one, market matters. Two, no, no one would, have, it would not have resonated. There, there's a lot of those articles, by the way, out there. But the way I wrote it, I told a story. And I think that's what really compelled people. And people recite those insights almost like word for word for me. I mean, I can even do it because I, they, they like stick into the soul in a, in a way that just sort of like arbitrary kind of like one-liners don't. And I think there's advice that you should listen to, but the advice you should listen to is always going to be incredibly generalized. But then it's really just like taking that and like going your own path, right? Through the, the jungle of sort of like the future and finding something that no one's found before going down the rabbit hole per se and coming back and saying, hey, hey guys, like look what I found. But by the time you found it, it's not interesting. Like it, you have a certain time period to capture it and capitalize on it. And then it's on to the next thing. And that's great if you're excited about creating stuff, but it's not so great if you wanted a sustainable business necessarily, right? And so that's kind of like the other, the other thing about creativity is it's inherently unstable. Like it's un- inherently like not something that you make once and, and, and can retire on almost. It's, it's sort of like an ongoing basis. Even your fans, right? You, people say a hundred true fans or a thousand true fans or, or what have you, but ultimately like very few people are fans enough of you that they will pay you 10 bucks a month forever. Like there is still a business relationship there. Right. And so I think that's great because it motivates you to create and learn more. And for me, like the large part of life is about learning more and and figuring myself out. But, you know, certainly if you're, if you're trying to get into a stable income, like there are, there are probably other ways to do it that, that might be a little bit more stable and less stressful. I saw you tweet something a couple of days ago talking about how powerful writing is as a skill. Mm-hmm. How important is writing to some of the creators you see who aren't specifically selling something that's written? Yeah, it's super important. It's super, super important. I mean, if you think about virtually everything is written. I mean, if you look, if you see a video on YouTube, there's often a script associated with it. If you watch a movie, there's a script. If you listen to a song, there are lyrics. Writing is the best tool that we have to express ideas in a, in a way that's sort of forwardable to somebody else, right? Even when we speak, you know, all of that stuff we speak is, is effectively can be written down. And, and because writing is sort of like so similar to code, I think like technology, it's just a lot easier to kind of talk. Like it's a lot easier for computers to understand writing than it is for computers to understand sound and video. So if you think about search, Google search, it, you, there's still no such thing as video search. Like I can't do a dance and it shows me people doing the same dance. You know, you can build that by proxy, but there's no technology that's figuring that out, right? And so I think text is just so essential. And, until, you know, I'm sure we will get to that point with other other mediums. You're starting to see a lot of interesting innovation in audio right now, for example, and video, obviously, with Zoom and everything like that. But text is still king, in my opinion. It has a huge lead time on every other technology, hundreds of years. I think, I guess, before, I don't know what was the first way you could transmit sound, like maybe it telegraph could you i don't even know like maybe I know. radio i think radio but that's that's not that long ago. i mean radio is what like that that's that was in the 1900s or i think like 18 like late 1800s late 1800s something like that. yeah and then tv was like 1920s or something i don't know but you know like not long i mean I, like not long ago compared to i mean books 
thousands of years. I mean, like it's, so I think, I think it's funny because I, I, I think when I say writing is a skill that gets more valuable every day, I really believe that, but it's also like, it's, it's almost like a non-statement, right? Because like everybody can do this. Everyone does do this. So like, obviously it, it becomes more valuable every day. You're, you're only more able to connect with people through your writing every day. More people are jumping onto the internet. More people are becoming literate. That's still happening. So it's like the easiest trend to bet on. And I really, I tell people like, I'm a writer. Like that is my day job. I might be a CEO or an investor or some of these other things, but like what, like if you think about what do I do? I write code. I write words. I write memos. I write company updates. I write, I write. I mean, like I, the way I communicate. 99% of the time with people is writing. Email, Slack, GitHub, Notion, I'm writing all the time. I'm constantly trying to figure out like what's in my head and then communicating that to somebody else. And I assume that's actually quite similar for many people. But people don't think about it like that, I think. It's, you know, I, I everything I write is is a product that I'm making for somebody else. I'm not just sending someone an email. Like every single thing I write, I I look over at least once. Uh, the only exception would be like a one-on-one text with somebody or something like that. But if I'm writing an email, I'll write the email, then I'll reread the email, and then I'll hit send. Twitter, same thing. Anything longer than a tweet, anything that you read from me that's longer than a tweet, I've probably rewritten four, five, six times. I think often people underestimate the difference between like effective writing and just okay writing because it's one of those skills that we've been doing since we were kids and it feels accessible. So it just feels like, oh, I can do this. But you, you don't realize how big of a difference clear, concise, effective writing can actually make in your day-to-day because it is such a consistent part of your day. Totally. I mean, the, way I, the, the easiest way if someone is looking for a mental model is how can you say the same thing with less words, right? So my first draft basically says everything I want to say most of the time. Like I wrote this draft reflecting on, for reflecting on my failure to billion dollar company. And it was like 6,000 words. And the final one was like 2,700 words. And I think I said the same thing. It was just like, how can I get rid of everything that isn't necessary to, to the point of this thing? What's duplicated? What do I say over and over again? And I, I'm sure, I, I, if I read it today, I'm sure I could cut it down further. But it's, 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 it's actually just like what information theory is in computer science. I think this is what lossless compression is, right? Which is like, if you have 10 black pixels, you don't have to say... You don't have to say one black pixel, one black pixel. You just say 10 black pixels, right? And so this is what's happening in your computer. I mean, this is like how data transfer and bandwidth and all all these concepts work. Zip files, like compressing CSS, like that's all that's happening. Your brain does this. If you do acid, you'll notice your brain doing this in front of you, where it'll it'll take two things that look similar and make them the same. Like what's happening is your brain is basically, you know, making, making the world in front of you more efficient, effectively. It's like turning everything into a fractal. And so... It's just fun too. I think, you know, writing is just super fun. And I think that's why I love Twitter. It's just like, it's 50% what people think Twitter is. And it's 50% having fun with words. Like half the stuff I tweet is not about what I'm saying. It's about how I'm saying it that I think is really compelling. And it's fun. It just feels good when you figure something out. Like I had a tweet the other day that was like, stop selling, start storytelling. And that is a Everyone has said that a million times over, but what I think is really interesting about that is it's the same, it's just selling and storytelling, start with S, end with Elling. Yeah. I'm just adding Tori, I guess. Uh, yeah. Right, something like that, Tori S or whatever. And so that's what's fun to me about it, right? And by the way, start and stop, both start with S and, and ST actually. So it's four words, all start with S. So it just feels good. It feels good to say, <laughs> and, and, and that's why I tweeted it. I didn't tweet about it because I was trying to make a point about, to me, those are my favorite 
my favorite tweets because they have, they operate on these kind of like multiple levels. And and when you're scrolling, this is the other interesting thing about writing is reading is a very different experience, right? You're skimming, it's going through a feed. You might not be analyzing the crap out of it and be like, oh, isn't it cool that he figured out that it's like S-T-S-S-T-S-T. But that's fine because your brain does. Like your brain noticed that. You know, it's like when you listen to a really good song, it sounds better, right? Yeah. You, you watch like a Christopher Nolan movie, you're like that was exceptional. But you don't have to, you don't, you don't, you can't explain why it was so good, right? You, you eat, it's like going to an amazing restaurant and being like, that was the best meal I've ever eaten. And you can't comprehend a better meal and then you eat a better meal and you're like, I don't understand. You just can't do it. But your brain, some, your brain or your tongue or your whatever is understands that that's what's happening. So that's why I think I am a writer first. Like everything I do is, is an excuse to write and writing is kind of an excuse to understand and understanding is all there is. So totally. it's sort of very, it's very fundamental. It's very, very, very fundamental to everything. And maybe, maybe that's temporary. Like maybe we'll figure out like a way like neural link and we'll just like transmit thoughts directly and we'll no longer think in words, right? Like one of the flaws with writing is that it's, that it's, it's a, it's kind of a serial track. You can't read two things at once. You can listen to two things at once. You can watch two things at once kind of, but you can't li- read two things at once, which is why people do audiobooks are so popular now and podcasts and all of these sorts of things. But why not? What if neural link made it possible to, to, to read two things at once or 10 things at once or have multiple can i have multiple conversations with people at the same time it kind of scares me because the the thing that <laughs> i feel like you lose with that because when i write because i'm taking my subconscious understanding of the world and forcing it into a conscious articulation of the english language it makes me understand even what i'm thinking in a world where i'm just like lossless transferring of neurons like what it if i lose chaos. what if i lose my ability to understand my own thoughts <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. It would be chaotic. And I think it would be interesting. I mean, this already happens, right? Because you you think about something like a steak and you you think you have a clear idea of what a steak is. But if I asked you like write down just write about steaks, like you would you would it would be chaotic. Like the stuff that would come out would be like cows and then like salt and and then you realize that like that's that's how it is in your brain. Like it's just like these mapping of stuff. And then writing kind of create it forces you to kind of figure out what is the line here? Like how can I create a single line. And when you do that, you feel you kind of, you know, that part of your brain is actually now also kind of a line. It's almost like cleaning a room or something like that in your brain. But yeah, I, I imagine that if there is something like Neuralink comes around and we kind of say, okay, like show me what this person thinks about this topic, it's going to be like <laughs> insanity. <laughs> it's 2020. The, the world for creators has changed a lot. If I'm listening to this episode and I'm saying, I know I want to like lean into my creativity and make a living online. What are like some of the basic steps you'd say here is how I would go about it just starting today in 2020? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big ones is just starting. Like I think a lot of people, and this is another thing with the internet is you can spend all your time doing your research. Uh, research and procrastination are like two sides of the same coin, basically. And I do get emails from people that they will email me and be like, hey, like, should I use Ruby or Python? And I'm just like, what? Like, who cares? It doesn't matter. Yes. Uh, yes. The answer is yes, exactly. And, you know, similar with a lot of these other other things. And it's fine to ask those questions. I think if you're, as, you, as a beginner, you have no, it's so, like, everything is so, like, it all looks the same to you, right? It's as you get closer, you realize, oh, these are two different mountains or what have you. So that's fine. But I do think I always just tell people, just start. Like, you're, you're going to have different questions a, a day in, and you'll realize how much better those questions are to have answers to from people than, than sort of those other questions that you have. And, and it, it's so much more fun and interesting when you get to that level. And you realize when you get to that level, how few people there actually are. 
like you, you look at how many people are writing and you're like, oh, there must be an insane amount of people. But if you really think about it and you really do the research, I did this with venture and I was like, there's no way I can get into this. It's so busy. There's so many people doing it. And I made a list. I wrote a list down and I was like, who are the best people in early stage venture? And it was like less than 40 people. And I was like, oh, wow, you can put all these people in a room. Yet people say it's so big. And I think it's because people look at it from afar and they're like, I see these people. So there must be like millions more. But no, there's actually just not that many people. And so I think a lot of it is just get started. Don't get sort of wary about the numbers because the numbers thin very quickly. And then focus on the on the craft, right? Like don't focus on, like no one says I'm, a, like no one, no one says I'm just a good musician, right? Like everyone has their voice, their fingerprint. And you can hear it very quickly, right? Like you don't have to know it's a Kanye song to know it's a Kanye song. And that's inevitable for every creator. Like I've never met a creator who has struggles. Beginners always think it's it's like, I started painting a couple years ago and I was like, what's my style? Is it going to be this or that? Guess what? You just paint the tree in front of you and you will very quickly find out the way that you see that tree is very different from the way other painters see that tree. People have a lot of self doubt and think they need to stand out from the crowd. And, 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 and it's like, no, you don't just like start, get really good, follow your interests. And if you get really good, like there are, you will be compelling. You will be compelling to a lot of other people. Well, there you have it. We hear this time and time again from creators on this show, but now you hear it from someone who supports tens of thousands of creators. Follow your interests, build a deep knowledge over a subject, share that knowledge and interest with other people around you, and you will be compelling. One thing that really resonated with me from this conversation was the emphasis Sawhill put on the separation over the focus of building an audience from the focus on building a competency that people will actually pay you for. We haven't heard this called out specifically on this show, but it's a really, really great point. Sometimes we get so obsessed with building an audience that we skip over the step of figuring out what our unique perspective is or our unique value that we can bring to that audience. Why would someone choose to follow you or support your work? There needs to be some substance there. And that substance, that competency, is what actually builds the audience. You can sell your own products on Gumroad at gumroad.com and you can follow Sawhill on Twitter at SHL. Links to those are in the show notes. Thanks to Sawhill for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and to Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at me at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next week. Universe.